Welcome to the Bedrock Podcast, recorded deep within the bowels of the Dover Innovation Compound. Today we are recapping Dover's visit to basic training and air university. If you have any comments or would like to ask follow-up questions, check us out at doverspark.org. Enjoy the listen. back to the Bedrock Podcast. I'm Major Hill from the Bedrock Innovation Office. Today we've got some wing leadership here to talk about a recent TDY to Air University, Maxwell Air Force Base. We'll go around the table and introduce ourselves. I'm uh, Major Tim Hubler from the Commander's Action Group. I'm Chief Master Sergeant G, the Airlift Wing Command Chief. I'm Colonel Joel Safranic, the 436th Airlift Wing Commander. So I guess we'll start it off with uh, initial questions. What was the intent of the trip? Where did you go? Why? Uh, the intent, this is Colonel Safranic, the intent was given to us by the Chief of Staff of the Air Force. He asked us in priority order to visit Lackland first in basic training, and then he said, get down to Air University, and if you have the time, go to the Air Force Academy. He said, I want you to see our primary training grounds. He goes, I want you to meet a lot of the young officers and the young airmen. And one of the underlying questions he had for us is, how, how do we go from people that are so excited and so enthusiastic about life in the Air Force to later on, uh, the potential for airmen to have despair and, and maybe be disgruntled. Okay, sir. So then, you know, a follow-on question to that would just be, what did you learn? Did you, did you see um, anything that would um, lead to any conclusions of, of why someone would be excited about the Air Force or not? Uh, I'll tell you, it's one of the, tr- the trip down to Lackland with basic training. And at the time, Chief Green and I went down there. Um, man, there's there's an incredible amount of families that come down for the graduation. And, and you see the enthusiasm, not just in the member themselves, but in the, in the family members that come down for the graduation and for some of the events leading up to the graduation. Yes, sir, I know from being there, they usually have about 3,000 visitors that come from all over the world every week to see their graduates. And now they have set up to where they have social media accounts where the the family members are actively engaged in asking questions and what it means to be an airman and and just kind of giving that fidelity to help their airmen when they have questions and they don't want to ask leadership, you know, what's going on. Chief, how long ago did you go through basic training? Well, I went through back in the (laughs) 90s. However, uh, I was an MTI from 2005 to 2011. Um, so got to live the live the BMT life for about six years. But as I keep going back in different variances, it's kind of evolved with the airmen that are coming in to make sure that we meet the intent of training them um, to where they understand. Uh, again, it's the basics, so they're learning to be an airman. So they have eight weeks of really getting to know what life in the Air Force is going to be like, and then they transition on to their next level of training and leadership. Have you seen a lot of changes from when you were an MTI until now, when you moved back? Yes, a ton of changes. Um, Back when I came through, we always had a shortage of MTIs. So with DSD, that's really helped get individuals that are definitely meeting uh, the excellence criteria, but then they're coming in and they have different ways of thinking and seeing it, they're outside of their comfort zones. So as we evolve, the airmen are really getting touch points. They've got um, 
tablets that they can use now. They're constantly on computers. They get their email built while they're there. So they're starting to access the different uh, Air Force portal and websites that they need to grow as an airman. So they're familiar before they get to their first duty locations. Same time, I'll tell you, as much as things change, some things stay exactly the same. I, I didn't go through basic training, but I went through the academy's basic training. And uh, whether it's open bay barracks, making beds, putting uh, clothes away, attention to detail, putting people in stressful situations, some of those things have been a kind of a time, time-lasted standard. Sir, as someone who didn't go through basic, what was eye-opening to you for that experience to see how our airmen are trained? Um, a couple things. One thing that was eye-opening was, I don't see the interaction with the public, but a certain extent of the interaction with the public, because you have a giant visitor center that's there, and some of the airmen even worked the visitor center, uh, where, where at the Air Force Academy, you were secluded for six solid weeks and, and just didn't see anybody um, due to the distance and, and that was there. But uh, there, there's a lot more interaction with the, with the public that comes through, as well as various parents come, come graduation. Um, even, even the kind of award ceremony that they had uh, for some of the distinguished graduates prior to the actual graduation parade, uh, there were parents in the stands able to watch and then the parents would come down and, and kind of hug and, and, and hang out with their, I don't want to keep wanting to say cadets, but not cadets, but hang out with their, their basic trainees that just wasn't what, what I went through. Are they getting it right down there? Are they doing, are they on the right track in your opinion? I think they are. I think we, we evolve. I know we change leadership, right? Every two to three years, that's a constant change that we don't take as a change. It's just the norm. Um, so as we're evolving in BMT, they're making changes to make sure that they're able to continue their uh, Air Force career through its entirety with the changes. So you're looking at more um, the cyber aspect of it. What's OPSEC? What's COMSEC? And, and what does that mean as, as everybody has a, a smartphone tablet around? and making sure that they learn those focuses. Um, there's some things, again, like Colonel Sopranic said, that we didn't change, and the norm is attention to detail. So if they're paying attention to how they roll their shirts, then we know that probably they won't miss a key piece of their duties when they go out there because they're paying attention to every step of why we do it. And a lot, a lot of people are like, why do they take such um, care and, and detail in folding their clothes and putting stuff up and aligning beds? It's really uh, the task itself is the attention to detail. Can you follow simple instructions? And then when, when you go to your tech training, are you going to be able to continue to follow the instructions as to where you need to go in your job? So I think evolving is, is definitely good. I think we have um, squadron superintendents uh, that are chiefs there, not necessarily from the MTI background, uh, that kind of give that leadership focus. So they're getting the well-rounded uh, concept of not just having a chief because it's an MTI, but a chief that's been around the Air Force and can give uh, inputs on, on their experiences. I think sometimes the question of whether or not they're getting it right depends a lot on your perspective and what foxhole you're in. So one of the rumors that I heard going down was, hey, they don't, they don't teach CADM training at, uh, at basic training anymore. Well, that's not necessarily true. They teach CADM training. It's, it's what they use to qualify folks CADM training. So their, their CADM training is done to a different qualification level, which is more of a weapons familiarization because they want to make certain that everybody that gets through basic training has a basic level of understanding 
of a, with the weapon, but not necessarily shooting to qualify to, to meet a deployment tasking. But being a, a wing that gains those people, you know, my perspective is, hey, why, why do I have to then do additional training if you've already had the time to put them through training? So I had a chance to talk with the command chief for the organization down there and say, hey, why can't you put into the curriculum a full-up qualification training? Their concern there is because you get a lot of kids that have never touched a weapon in their lives, they would end up washing out a ton of people at a point that we don't necessarily need to wash them out. So then you can try to talk about, well, hey, how about a middle ground? How about a minimum qualification for weapons familiarization? But folks that are familiar with the weapon, can we then qualify them so that when they get to a unit, they don't have to do that training again? And they took that for note as well as a couple other items. So I heard you both talk about um, families uh, being involved in the, the ceremonies and getting to see the cadet or the cadets, the, uh, the training. you doing it. <laughs> Uh, what what value do you think that has for families to be involved at such an early point in their careers? I think it's imperative. I, I know that I'm a I'm a mom. I'm a parent of an airman uh, that's in, and so I kind of understand what he's gone through, what he's doing day to day. Whereas we have a lot of airmen that come in and that that have never had affiliation with the Air Force or understanding of what's going on. And a lot of parents, as you see them on social media, don't understand and they ask questions. And to a military person, are like, that's simple. But to them, it's not simple because they've gave their child up to the Air Force and they want to understand what their child is going through. And then uh, with the media out there on, on both positive and negative inputs um, from military in a whole, uh, they ask questions they're concerned about their children. So I'll tell you, being in the reception center for four years and dealing with the, the masses of families that are there, we didn't have a, a social media platform where they could reach out and have touch points or talk to other parents uh, that just went through it. And so reality is, is now that they have those touch points, they have individuals that are there, their sole focus is to answer questions, um, get them through the process to ease their time. When you put 3,000 people together on a base, the majority never having an Air Force affiliation, don't know where to go. They're asking all kinds of questions. So this kind of prevents uh, getting them the information earlier, prevents any mass chaos uh, and then stress versus now they can enjoy uh, being there and seeing what their airmen do and, and how they perform. You got to figure that joining the military at that age for a lot of the young airmen, it's a family decision, not an individual decision. And a lot of those parents have not served. So there is a little bit of um, concern and worry. And most people only know what Hollywood has showed them. And anyone that's been in the military knows that that's not necessarily an accurate depiction. So I think having the parents involved, A, helps them with understanding what their child's getting into. And then the other part of it is, is just pure resiliency. Um, you know, they're going to go through a very difficult time through basic training, through tech school, and in the beginning of their service, and having a parent that is there on day one to drop them off, maybe having a parent that's there for graduation, having a parent that's involved with that is, is just going to make that airman a little more resilient throughout that process. So then getting back to the chief of staff's initial intent to see maybe where a disparity is from basic training or some of our um, session programs to base level, could families be the connection to families be a part of that? And if so, is there a way that um, Dover or the Air Force at large could um, help connect families more to the mission and what their airmen are doing? So I think the uh, social media has beat that, uh, beat the Air Force to that. Um, 
you know, originally just a BMT family's social media. Now they have connections to where the parents have specific social media sites for each base. And so you'll have one admin, if you say, uh, that has the ability that goes to the Dover pages. Uh, hey, did you know this is going on? Hey, Dover shared pictures of our airmen. Here's pictures of our airmen. Hey, when your airman gets to Dover, what's going on? So those are already happening. And, and I would say 99% of the bases to include our reserve units have uh, parent social media pages where they reach and touch back. Hey, my airman's about to go there. What have you seen? What have you heard? Do you have airmen there? Can we connect our airmen so that they get there and they know somebody? Um, so really, I think the parents are, are trying to be very proactive. Um, in some instances, you can tell when the airman's not telling their their uh, families the whole uh, situation on, hey, this is where I'm going, this is what's happening. But they ask questions and then they get, get feedback and they'll reach uh, different military members that are actually have airmen and ask those questions so they get the right the right answer. Another another interesting thing is, is kind of the journey itself. So at that time, based on, on the calendar, it was Chief Green that went down to um, Lackland with me. And so as we were going by one of the basic training locations for the dorms, uh, we were on a bus with the Kentucky National Guard for their adjutant general and um, their command chief. And so Chief Green made a comment about, hey, that's, that's the building I was in for basic training. And the command chief for the National Guard said, well, what, what years? And, and Green told him. And he goes, hey, I was at MTI during that time period. And that was the squadron I was associated with. And then I think Chief Green had a couple flashbacks. Um, and he realized, wait a second, I recognize you. <laughs> but, but a fundamentally different relationship between a basic trainee and an MTI than you know, add 25 years later and having two chiefs sitting on a bus later in life, kind of looking back on that same time period. And, and I think that's a valuable thing to understand for a lot of the young airmen too, is that, that the relationship that you have with your instructors at basic training, that same MTI could come back to your squadron, come back to your base, and, and now you're more of a peer or a coworker than necessarily the MTI, basic training type relationship. What about uh, perceptions that were different? Uh, Chief, you kind of sneak, uh, peeked behind the curtain, so as an MTI, so you kind of knew a lot of the, the background, but Colonel Safranek, for you, what was a perception you had of basic training that may have been different um, than reality? I'm trying to think, because to be honest with you, it, might, it matched a lot of my perceptions um, of basic training, but I've been around enough and have an idea what goes on down there that I've kind of separated fact from fiction. Um, I would argue the one thing is probably just seeing behind the curtains with the MTI and the care and concern. Because once again, Hollywood makes that, that mentality of they're, they're just there to be like the barking dog. But in reality, there's a lot of, of intent and purpose and care and design behind what they're trying to do. I think that there's a lot of perceptions that BMT is now easier. BMT is, they're not as, as mean or, or assertive versus aggressive uh, with the training. And really, I think uh, an MTI's sole purpose is to kind of use psychology 101. Each person learns differently. Each person reacts or trains uh, to a different level based on the situation. Some are visual, some are audio. Uh, but then their life plays a role in that. So you have individuals that come from various backgrounds, some homeless, uh, and in various situations. And so if, if they were always yelled at, it might be different that 
that, okay, it's not going to work on them, right, to yell at them. So that it's really psychology 101. It, it's easy for prior MTIs to say it's, it's easier now uh, than when it was. We've just kind of focused our, our sole attention on making sure our airmen get the, the necessities in training to be able to move on versus uh, back in the day when, you know, everyone talked about us and like, why are we getting um, trainees that are like this X, Y, and Z? But until you see the focus of what the MTIs are responsible for, there's not an understanding. I mean, the entire time I've been in, we've always had that perception that there's a timeout card that shows up in BMT. And if you flag it, you know, the MTI has to give you five minutes. Um, that's been around for years, but never really has been there. Um, so I've never seen an airman raise their hand and say, I need a timeout, right? We probably would have more fun uh, with the individual that did that. So there's there's perceptions um, that, that it's easier. I don't think it's easier. I think it's more focused on the individuals in training to make them a team. Well, and there are a lot of those folklores. Like I said, when I went down there, the rumor was, hey, they don't teach CADM anymore, but you find out they do teach CADM. Mm-hmm. It's just dealing with the qualification levels. Hey, there's a timeout card. No, there isn't a timeout card. Um, so for a lot of folks listening, I tell you, don't, don't believe the rumors, go and find out the facts. Um, and as far as the perception of easier or harder, I can tell you for the, for the airmen themselves, the perception is that it's, that it's still hard. Probably one of the more interesting things that wasn't on the quote tour was that night when I went to go grab some dinner, I just ran over to Popeye's chicken. And so as I'm sitting there eating some Popeye's chicken and, and drinking at the table, um, there was a young trainee meeting with his parents getting near graduation and just listening to him and he's dropping on the family to the stories and the conversations that he told his mom and dad, um, you start to realize now that it's the same for them as it was for, for other folks decades ago. What I, are your key takeaways from that, from your time at Lackland? From my time at Lackland uh, as an MTI and then going back uh, there to see my son graduate and then various graduations after. My key takeaways are uh, their pride. They're socialized with with other airmen. They're socialized with leadership that comes out to visit and it just gives them a a sense of of belonging and understanding. And so that has to continue through our time. Um, It kind of chokes you up to know that your your son is an airman and then to not necessarily follow in your footsteps and create their own path but know that they have a touch point to go back and, and tell their other airmen like, hey, have you thought about this or ask questions for them? But I'll tell you, it, it, it's ever so prevalent when you have a parent that somehow hunts you down on social media to say, you are my child's MTI, thank you. Um, this is what they've done. Or you have your individual airmen and trainees that are like, hey, just wanted to follow up with you. I am now a tech sergeant at, at Base X and this is what I'm doing. And, and thank you again. And it's not even just your specific flight. So if you if you ever touch their lives within the the, the squadron itself, uh, because usually they're running uh, close over 20 flights at a time in various stages of location, but they'll remember you. Um, so it's it's those one one individuals that take the time to reach out that really make make it important that we did what we needed to do. And for me, it was it was pride not just in the individual graduating, but from the family. I mean, you just saw all the tears and, and the joy and the happiness, and and you start to realize that they've given us their most important thing, which is their child, to then take care of for the next couple of years. 
um, and they're and they're fully behind the Air Force come come graduation. The other part of it is the size and the scope. Uh, it was one of the smaller graduating classes when we went down there, and I think it was somewhere around 700, and they pushed through about seven to 900 every every week or so, and it's something like 40 to 45 thousand people a year. So when you take that across the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, uh, the Air Force, you're talking 200 to 250 thousand young Americans every single year are put through basic training. So you take these young kids that may or may not have things together, you add some discipline, you add some structure, you add some uh, training, and then most of those people won't stay in the service. That's just a reality. So four, six, maybe eight years later, they separate from the service, but you take a young 18-year-old kid that may not have it together, and then the service will depart a 24, 25-year-old individual that does have it together. Uh, and goes on to do great and wonderful things for America, and that's probably the most powerful thing that we do. All right, Chief, we've all seen Full Metal Jacket, and the best part of that movie is the first 30 minutes where uh, you're just ripping into the, the trainees. What's the best insult that you remember uh, that was just one of your go-tos that's politically correct, of course? <laughs> we were always politically correct, sir, for the most part. <laughs> I think they all made us watch before we came down to BMTI's watch Full Metal Jacket and what it entails. Um, but really, your first, you know, zero week to, to first week, you're constantly yelling. And everybody's like, why do you always yell? What's the purpose in yelling besides going home and your kids like it because you're not yelling at them? Um, is the main thing is you're yelling to be loud enough so everybody hears their correction. And so they learn from the correction. Um, but I'll tell you. There's, I wish I had written a book on, on everything that, that took place because uh, you just can't make it up. Uh, but getting individuals, we had an airman uh, that was in training in the stairwell and he was yelling at another MTI. And, and I was like, why are you yelling? So I walked in on this and I'm like, let's go. Let, let's just go downstairs. Why are you yelling? He's like, well, he was letting me yell. I was like, but what, what did you get out of it? What's the purpose? Uh, and really uh, taking him and he was like, well, I don't take to yelling because I was always yelled at. So it doesn't work. But yelling back at him, it worked. So yell the airman yelling at the MTI. So really taking him by the, the, the ear, not literally, um, for a walk and getting to know what, what gets his trigger. Uh, but then when you're out and about and you see airmen at various locations throughout your career, I know it was in the desert and we had a visit going on. So this airman was standing outside of the dining room uh, DV door and he was just eyeballing me. And I was like, oh my goodness. And he would not stop. And I'm like, what is going on? What's wrong? And he's like, oh, you're my MTI. I said, okay, well, you're staff sergeant now. We're good. You know, we can move on. But he was just like, I can't do anything. I can't move. And I'm like, just keep moving. But really getting that, that information out there in any way, shape, or form that they can understand because it's like a shock and awe. You're trying to get them to, to realize and think, and then everybody hears the correction. Um, but, yeah, there's so many instances that. that you, you must have had a couple good ones where you just made the airmen laugh despite their attempt to remain steady. So I'll tell you my very, very, my very first flight, um, I'm not one for cursing. Um, and so depending on the situation, you will hear um, some curse words. But my first flight, the flight was totally messing up. It was their blues day. So they got issued their blues. So they've been getting them fitted and everything. And we moved them in the dorms and they were just 
they were so excited about their blues they weren't paying attention to anything else in the schedule and really um, they put up their blues on their locker getting ready and I'm trying to get them out and trying to get them out and just frustrated um, and my my uh, MTI instructor he was he was uh, he was scary even even as a, a, a student for me he was scary so I never wanted to do anything wrong and there was a bird in the dorm so a bird was flying around in the dorm and so I just yelled at them I'm like I hope that bird boo-boo's on your blues and, and my instructor's like really you just said that it's like I couldn't <laughs> think of anything else to say <laughs> so tell us about the Air University trip um, what did you see where did you go uh, we went down to Maxwell and and same thing she said the chief said hey go down to Air University and and see what it's about and, and, and everything else so we went down to Maxwell for about a day and a half. Uh, and one of the reasons I think it took so long is you don't realize how much is under the Air University umbrella. Um, for, for most officers, someone says Air University, you go, okay, SOS, Air Command and Staff College, maybe Air War College. All right, there's, there's three colleges. Uh, you you kind of forget about the research. You forget about the international students. You forget about um, even things like SAS. But even that, most of that's on the Maxwell campus. Versus the Gunther Annex, and then and then a little bit eye-opening because I've been to Maxwell multiple times, but never gone over to the Gunther Annex. And you start to see the Barnes Center and everything from uh, the First Sergeant's Academy to the Senior NCO Academy to the Chiefs course. Uh, then you think of all the other courses, whether it's the Command Chiefs course, the Wing Commanders course, the Squadron Commanders course, things that they teach down there, more one-week, two-week uh, type increments instead of full-blown out, you know, year-long courses or month-long courses. All right, sir, so uh, for your trip to Air University, what was the AU commander's message to you or concerns? Uh, when he sat down and, and talked to us, some of his focus was geared more towards the uh, the officer training side of the house in the sense of Air University, Air War College, um, Command and Staff College, that graduate programs. And, and he said a couple of things. One, no one knows what all of our university does. Like we talked about, it's much larger than those, than those top pieces. Um, so educating everybody on as expansive it is, I think it was something like 128,000 students a year go through uh, Air University in some way, shape, or form, whether that's AFID, whether that's CCAF, or, or whether that's one of the more graduate programs. Um, but then when he looked at the graduate programs in particular, he had some concern for when we look at a lot of our senior leaders across the Air Force, how many of them are Air University graduates? How many of them did their IDE and, and SDE programs, either through Air Command and Staff College or Air War College? And when you compare that to the Army or the Navy, a good portion of, of those services, senior leaders, graduate from their programs. Yet we have a tendency to, to stray away from that. Uh, now granted, there's the easy part of it, which is to say, what's well, the location, right? Air University's not in the greatest of locations, in comparative to some of the other locations. Um, but even if you look at, at the Army's War College, it's out in the middle of nowhere in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, so when you pull away from, from the location, kind of as the easy button, he also said, hey, look around. One, you know, looks are always first impressions. And when you look at the base, whether it's mowing the grass, whether it's clean buildings, whether it's world-class facilities, Air University had got to look not so well. So they're investing and in making certain that it looks the way that it should so that it has that feel and people go, hey, this is a world-class institution. Two, when he, when he looked at the 
different organizations they've partnered with. There weren't a lot of other universities that are kind of the tier one universities that they've partnered with. So when you look at, hey, what does that university represent? What does it bring in? So they've actively gone out to trying to find Harvard, Stanford, uh, University of Pennsylvania, some of those other tier one universities, and how do they pair up with them for programs in order to raise that bar? Uh, and then he said, the reality too is, is the instructors. You know, because the average person doesn't go there, uh, that I don't want to say it isn't the highest caliber, but we just don't, you know, you, people are going to flock to where promotions go. People are going to flock to where you think uh, the Air Force values things. And if the Air Force doesn't necessarily value Air University, then, then why would top-notch instructors go there? Maybe they got a family member that near, lives nearby and they want the location. But if not, that doesn't necessarily happen. And you've seen a shift probably over the last five-ish years where now we have instructors that go to Air Command and Staff College and then teach at Air Command and Staff College afterwards, that they go to Air War College and they teach at Air War College afterwards, or on their way to Air War College or on their way to Command and Staff College, they teach SOS for a year. Um, and that's brought up a lot of the quality of instructors with the, with the higher levels of, of people that, that we consider more high-performing officers um, than just taking anybody that'll, that'll come. At the same time, this last round of uh, push for, for instructors, I don't remember the exact numbers, but there were something like 1,400 people pushed and, and only about 300 or 400 positions available. So as they start to pull uh, the instructor core that the chief has just recently pushed for, once again, it allows you to pick from, from more of the top tier than just anybody that's willing to take the assignment. Did the AU commander give any more details on that program? Um, as far as making it competitive for instructor duties for officers? Uh, he did, but what he said is, hey, this, this isn't something that's gonna be solved overnight, right? Because because for us to ask now for instructors, those instructors won't show up at Air University till next year. And then for those instructors to spend a two or a three year assignment in Air University, and then, and then depart Air University, you won't see that for another three or four years. So it's one of those things where you gotta kinda plant the seeds now and then watch them as they grow. Um, but even recently with some of the other changes they've made to Air University, uh, later on they went into some of the promotion rates and every single major at Air University made lieutenant colonel. All right, the Air Force average is roughly 75%-ish and changes every year. Well, if every lieutenant or major that went there made lieutenant colonel, then that already tells you that there's a higher tier than the average. Whereas if 50% made lieutenant colonel or 25% made lieutenant colonel, then that would kind of tell you that, hey, maybe we don't have the quality. So, so like I said, these are things that are changes that are for the better, but at the same time, changes that have already happened over the last couple of years. Sir, I just want to clarify, is that majors that went through Air University at one point, or is that actually actually the instructors at Air University that, that are promoting that's, the colonel? That's the instructor cadre. So that's not the students that go there, but the instructor cadre that is assigned full-time to Air University, uh, they had a 100% promotion rate this last round from major to lieutenant colonel. So that tells you the caliber of the faculty that they're starting to bring down there, and they have been bringing down there for the last couple of years. What about the, at Gutter Annex, Chief? What was the experience there? So I think that the biggest thing uh, they discussed with uh, CCAF, so they have a CCAF task force in, in force trying to get after 
what the future intent of the CCF is. Um, you know, we've made changes to where you can get promoted now with an associate's degree. Um, you don't just have to have a CCF. So how, how do they maintain relevancy uh, in the changing age? So they're looking at moving uh, different opportunities from CCAF. Can we fold that into a college? Right now, CCF is not transferable, right? So they're looking at different instances where people come in already with associate's degrees or bachelor's and how does that funnel into the CCAF? Because right now CCAF is technically focused on your job, on your, on your core area, but we have a ton of people now coming in with degrees or credits from degrees that they're trying to get transferred in to utilize that. So they're looking at various ways to make it still a viable option that that airmen want to go to and then that leads into the AFCOLS program where that's a technical uh, certification right now you can only go uh, based on on your job they're looking at opening that up to anybody that wants to attend but really there's still going to be requirements so if your job is working on the flight line uh, and you have to have 60 plus hours on the flight line working uh, you may not get that if your AFSC is not driven by flight line operations. So if you're a mission support group, you're not going to get that flight line piece. So really, it's not still not going to work for you. But they're looking at op opportunities to allow individuals to go into different technical expertise credentialing um, that can follow them, leadership, um, the project manager uh, proponent uh, of it is, is a big degree that everybody wants to get, but they wait later on closer to retirement and in reality if you if you take that program seriously it's a two-year uh, requirement to do that project management piece um, to get that into your records and then the test is just is is super super hard but people go into it like oh I'm six months out from retirement I'm gonna I'm gonna push for this so I have it when I get out and then they're not able to fulfill the time span and get it complete they rush it and then they don't take it as serious so planning that two years back. Um, so the CCF piece is a big piece uh, that they're changing and transitioning uh, to the current future ops. And then we visited Chief's Leadership Course for Sergeant Academy and the uh, Senior NCO Academy. And so a lot of things uh, that were given to us, National Defense Strategy, uh, the proponent of Chiefs that go to Chief's Leadership Course have not even read the, the summary of the National Defense Strategy and what role they play into that. Um, and that was another piece of the Senior NCO Academy. So getting that information out there to just read the summary, it's eight pages, maybe 20 minutes of reading if you dedicate that time to reading it, but understanding what your role is in. And then the question is asked is, okay, so you've read it. Now can you translate that to your airmen on what their role is in the National Defense Strategy? So they're gift getting after what we really need to know strategically in those courses, but making sure they understand how to translate it. I think what was interesting about CCAF is there's certain things about your culture that just becomes the norm and then you just assume everyone else is doing it. So the Air Force, CCAF has always been there for the time period that most of us have all been in. So you just assume that, okay, the Navy's got a CCAF equivalent, the Army's got an equivalent, the Marine Corps's got an equivalent. And one of the interesting facts that they provided was the Air Force is the only one service that has a community college, which, which was kind of surprising to me. Um, but interesting and, and thankful that, that we've got. And if you look at the joint, uh, the joint basing and different bases that have the various um, other sister services, they have the opportunity 
to go to the CCF, get their CCF degree when they're on uh, working with the Air Force. And so you'll see a lot more sister services getting a, an associate's degree from the Air Force uh, for their role and what they do every day, which was kind of cool. Sir, jumping back to a previous topic, what's your advice to officers as far as the instructor duty now? I mean, we've heard what the Air Force has said officially, but what's your take on it? What would you advise? Um, I would always advise someone to be an instructor in, in whatever it is that they choose to do, whether it's more of an academic format or a functional format. Like they say, the best way to learn something is to teach it. So by teaching it, you'll, you'll learn it better than anything else. Um, like all things, you got to look at the at the bennies, and they're trying and they're trying to add a couple there to kind of sweeten the pot. So if if I remember them correctly, they said that if you go down there as a part of this Air Force instructor recruiting duty for a two-year, three-year tour, then you don't deploy during that time period. Yes, so for folks out there that are thinking, hey, you know the ops tempo's been a little high, I just got to take a knee for a second. Doesn't mean that you're not going to work hard every day, but you're just not going to necessarily uh, deal with some of the other type of ops tempo, or you got a family thing coming up. Hey, there's a very valid reason to kind of keep pushing in a different way, but also allow for a pause at the same time. Then you look at things like the promotion rates. Um, you know, people sometimes think, well, if I do that, it's going to hurt my career. If you look at the facts that have come out of it, and I just checked my notes. Uh, they also were lucky enough this last round to have 98% of their 05s make 06, which is, you know, the promotion rate to 06 is probably somewhere around 50 to 60%. So once again, it's showing the caliber of people they're bringing down there are more than competitive to keep promotions. So one, it's not going to hurt your career. Two, the Air Force is turning in a direction that's going to help your career. And three, once again, to be able to teach is, is always going to be a, a, a beneficial thing. Uh, there's also folks um, that just after time kind of say, hey, I'm ready for something different. And, and when you've been in the Air Force for a while, we've invested into you a certain functional area. So you have a tendency to just stay on that comfortable, easy path. And, and I would encourage someone that's thinking, hey, I've been doing something for a while and I'm ready for something different. Look at things like the PhD program. I mean, Air University will send you to a, a university across the country to get a PhD in a particular uh, degree program with the requirement that now you're on a little bit of a different track. So you spend your three years getting your PhD, you come back to Air University to teach, and the payback is approximately a five-year tour at Air University, so you're looking at eight years of your career. So it's something that you've got to kind of commit to, but it's an option for certain people out there. Now to the important question, uh, sir, you said you ate at Popeye's at Lachlan. Where did you eat when you were in Alabama? Oh, we ate at a couple places. We hit the barbecue joint officially as a part of the tour. Um, I can't remember the place we went to dinner. The first night it was an Italian place, and then the second night was more American type food. We'll check the box with the barbecue though. Well, Maxwell's hopping on our and Montgomery's hopping on a Sunday night. When you go downtown on a Monday, it was kind of desolate. Slow on Monday. <laughs> I'll ask the more important question: Did you go to a biscuits game? No. Oh, you missed out. No. But but I'll be honest. What what what's different for me? And I went through squadron officer school back in two thousand and one. So trying to remember that far back and remember accurately is tough. But my wife and I went down there, and we had a, our son was about four or five months old at the time. I just don't remember Maxwell having much downtown. But but now you go down there and, it, and they've kind of cleaned up that downtown area by the biscuits. Mm -hmm. There's a whole row of restaurants because that's what we did is we just went down to that one place every night and just walked the streets until we found a, a restaurant. I was surprised and, and maybe it was there in 2001, but 
don't think it was. So Chief, what, what surprised you about the officer side of Air University? Well, I'll tell you, I kept passing notes to Colonel Safranic with acronyms and saying, what is this? <laughs> so um, try, trying to make sure I understand uh, the acronyms. Um, so realizing there's a difference between SOS and then you've got SAS and then what that actually means to the, the officer's side of the promotions. Um, so getting to, to understand that. But what I really keyed on keyed in on was the fact that they, they're looking at flight commander uh, courses, but then looking at, okay, how do we tie the, they're enlisted at that same level in to getting the same information and thinking almost the same. So they're looking in that at all levels, but how do you really uh, transition into that piece? And so I think they're getting after it. And I think um, at least tying in, they're trying to move uh, one of the core officer areas because you know, you have the annex and you have Maxwell. And so when you think of Maxwell, you think all officer. When you think of Gunter, you think all enlisted. So they're really looking at using uh, the library that, that's really not used anymore at the Senior NCO Academy and transitioning that into an officer core area where they can do some training. So you'll have some interaction um, on Gunter and then you'll have more, uh, hopefully a robust opportunity for senior NCOs to get involved with SOS. Right now it's a day and they're looking at, well, how, how can we expand it and, and make it um, important enough to keep it and maintain it. Yeah, they're realizing the, the, the kind of critical importance of integrating senior NCOs and CGOs into each other's curriculums uh, instead of stovepiping them 30 minutes away on two different campuses. Sir, same question to you, just reversed. What was, your, uh, what was eye-opening to you about the enlisted? Uh, the eye-opening piece to me, one, was, it sounds so silly because I always knew it was there, but honestly just knowing that it was there and what was there and how much was there. Um, even when we drove down, we drove from Atlanta um, down to Montgomery as we were flying in, and I asked the chief a silly question now, which was, hey, have you ever been to Maxwell? And she looked at me like, yeah, and she listed off about a half a dozen courses that she'd been in down there. Because once again, my familiarity was with the Maxwell main campus in the academic circle, which is, is all the air university, air war college, command and staff college, SOS type training. Uh, and I was a little more ignorant of, of the Barnes Center and everything that it had over on the enlisted side. Uh, and then the other thing is just hearing whether it was the Senior NCO Academy, whether it was the First Sergeant's Academy or the Chief's Leadership Course, uh, all three of them had the same comment about Senior NCOs and what they're trying to do, which was that there's a little bit of a d deficiency in some of our Senior NCOs in knowing and understanding the bigger and broader picture. You got a lot of great Senior NCOs out there that are phenomenal security forces, phenomenal aircraft mm -hmm. maintainers. They're very entrenched in their functional area of expertise getting them to understand what goes on outside of their squadron across the group and even more so what goes on outside of their squadron across the wing or even like the chief talked about understanding national security strategy and, and the broader picture across the Department of Defense I think the enlisted corps is struggling with hey how, how do we pull those folks out of their stovepipe and get them to understand the bigger picture so that as they're in that functional expertise they understand how it intertwines with the, the rest of the organizations across their unit so uh, after your experience down there, Air University is such a, a beast of an organization, as you said, with a lot of different programs. Uh, are they getting it right, in your opinion? Um, and that's tough because 
like you said, it's so broad. You go to a place like um, the NCO Academy, yes, maybe they're getting it right. You go to Air Command Staff College, yes, they're getting it right. But but is there some nook and cranny somewhere in some classroom where they're, they're not getting it right? Probably. I mean, it's too large of an organization not to have a flaw somewhere. Uh, but I can tell you that from the leadership and the people that we talk to, the intent to get it right, the effort to get it right, uh, I mean, they're trying to redo the curriculum. Uh, once again, like the chief talked about, where they're recognizing, hey, we have shortfalls. We, we've got our senior NCOs learning separately from our CGOs, but then the CGOs and senior NCOs go out into the uh, squadron and try to work together. So how do we get both of them integrated in some of the training so that they're learning from one another? Um, that's probably one of the more, you know, inspiring is not the right word, but, but hopeful um, views from, from leaving there is that there's a willingness to look at the curriculum, there's a willingness to look at the program, to take the critiques, to take the feedback, find where they're not getting it right, and then try to make it better. Tying the circle back to basic training, uh, and you know, if, if basic is getting it right and these airmen are coming out of there just motivated and fired up to be an airman in the Air Force, what are we getting wrong at the, at the base and the unit level um, when you know, they show up to the base and then you know, maybe a very small percentage, but some of them kind of lose that focus or they don't perform as well as they thought they might? Is, is there something we can do at the mid-range supervisor level, you think, at the unit level to change that? Sure. My first comment on that will be um, it really does start at the frontline supervisor. Where that frontline supervisor is a, a staff sergeant, or, or a captain, and, and that particular problem set has been around for decades, and, and I use me as an example. So when I was, I always say, people ask me, hey, how'd you enjoy being assigned to, to Kadena in the 909th? And I say, man, it was one of the most fun assignments I've ever had, uh, but we were so busy as a squadron having fun, we weren't taking care of people. And, and when I left Kadena, um, I was ready to get out of the Air Force. And it, it had nothing to do with the greater Air Force or anything the Air Force was doing wrong as much as how I felt that I was or wasn't being taken care of at a very um, personal level in the squadron at the unit level. And so when I left Kadena, you know, I went to Grand Forks. I remember talking to my DO at the time, a guy named Major Daryl Watsick, and he said, all right, what do you want to do, you know, now that you're in this new squadron? And, and my mind immediately went towards, hey, I want to uh, work in the safety office. Because I was like, hey, if I work in the safety office, I get safety on my resume. Um, if, if I go to advanced instrument school and if I go to instructor school, I've just set up my airline interview resume is perfect. And he kind of looked at the things I had done um, as, a, as a young lieutenant. I competed in rodeo. As a young lieutenant, I worked in stand eval. And he was like, that's yeah, nice that you want to work in safety, but you're not going to. And he put me in training. And he put me on a better track for my career than what I had realized at the time. Um, but by having a second assignment, the location wasn't so good. I mean, I, Sorry to anybody from North Dakota, but it's it's just not a popular <laughs> place. So Colonel Schaff, if you're listening, sorry. Um, <laughs> but I left that second assignment in a lesser desirable location, happier about how I was taken care of, than I did a more desirable location in a unit that was really just too busy having fun to take care of people. Um, and, and that kind of pulled me back into the Air Force. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. There, there, there's things that are going on when people walk out of this controlled setting to more of an uncontrolled setting by, by getting into the bigger, broader Air Force. Uh, and, it, and it really, a lot of it comes down to who is my direct supervisor and how do I feel that they're caring for me? And if I do, I'm 
probably more apt to stay. I'm more apt to have a better life. And if they don't, it just becomes one of those other rocks that gets put in my rucksack. I think early on, say for instance, basic training, we teach structure. We, we teach time management. This is what you're gonna do day in, day out. They get to tech training. It's a little lesser. They give them a little more responsibility but they're still having that structure. Somebody's constantly overseeing them, getting them to where they need to be, and then they get a little freedom. And when they when they get through their base, the, he's, Colonel Safranek's exactly right with the first line supervisor. They set the tone for their time there. So if that structure is not there, that standards and discipline isn't maintained, that they started learning uh, at their first duty location, that first impression, then they're like, everything I learned, we'll just throw it out the window. Um, so really, it's taking that out of uh, care. I know when I came back in again in the 90s, uh, we showed up in service dress when we, we signed into our base. Um, thank, you know, some people will think, thank goodness we don't do that now, right? But we came in, we were scared uh, to not show up and, and our un uniform was pristine. But really, it was that first line supervisor that picked us up and said, this is what you will do. This is what we maintain. This is your feedback and expectations. And so if we don't set those right out the gate with the airmen, then really they're on their own. They're trying to figure it out on their own. And we can't wait till first term airmen, uh, uh, FTAC, to get them that training, right? Because they're here sometimes two to three weeks before that. So it really starts with, this is what's gonna happen. This is where you need to be when you need to be. Give them that structure and then they're following it you're not constantly having to have that touch point with getting them uh, on task. Some individuals will still ha uh, find their way uh, out of the Air Force uh, with some help sometimes, but most individuals want that structure, want that alignment to understand, but when you go away from that, it, it doesn't help. And I'll tell you one, one instance when I was in the missile field at F.E. Warren, and I was out there inspecting one of my chefs, and and another individual from the maintenance side of the house came in, uh, was a master sergeant, called my A1C and told my A1C, oh, just call me Bob. My head went on a swivel. Um, and this is before my MTI days, right? Uh, you've got to have that standards. I'm like, no, she's an airman. You're a master sergeant. She will call you by your rank or your rank and last name. Uh, and not understanding that we're not just a job. We're in the military. So keeping that standards and discipline is is important but knowing how to use them i'll say taking the time to show that you care for people can be done in some some almost seemingly um unimportant ways so I, i'll go back to my example with kadena i've had 12 duty assignments and the only duty assignment i left without some sort of a helm farewell without a lithograph is from kadena mm -hmm. so so just making certain that when somebody leaves an assignment take the time to show some appreciation and hand them a picture, a plaque, or whatever it is that your unit does, it makes a world of difference. Sounds like it's a blend of being familiar with your airmen, but not necessarily on the personal level, first name basis. That's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about getting to know your airmen so that you can help them discover what's best for them, as Colonel Safranek said earlier, and then but also maintaining the, the military standards and the bearing that they're supposed to have. Agreed. It's, all, it's, it's about intrusive leadership knowing what your airmen do day to day out, day in, day out, what they're doing on their off time, how are they doing? Because if you're not talking with them constantly and have that visibility with them, you can't tell when something's wrong. 
you can't tell tell when they're faking a smile, right? So it is, it's that constant touch point and, and we call it intrusive leadership and it really needs to be there. But some people have an issue with being intrusive because they don't want their supervisors in their in their business. So I'm not gonna do it to my airmen, but then where is the connect? Where Where is that relationship that, that they'll come to you in any situation? All right, as we wrap this up, sir, what were just the last few takeaways from this trip that, that you wanted to pass along? Maybe one thing for the enlisted corps, the officer corps, and then our civilians. Um, a couple items that I kind of forgot to mention earlier is that when you're talking about PME, and we talk very heavily on the enlisted side and the officer side, uh, there's also inclusion for the civilians. So for squadron officer school, GS9s to GS12s are eligible to go to SOS. For Air Command and Staff College, GS13s and 14s. And then for uh, Air War College, GS14s and 15s. So that's an important part of kind of that tripod between civilian uh, enlisted and officers to think about. Uh, one of the other things I found interesting was OTS. So, so my perspective of how many graduates we got from OTS was way off. Uh, if you'd asked me before going to Air University, I would have said maybe 15% went through the academy, 25 or so percent were OTS, and then in, in ROTC did the bulk of our commissioning programs. But in reality, that's flipped on its head. The academy does about 15%. Um, ROTC probably does about 35% of commissioning, and then almost half of the commissioning in, in the United States Air Force is done through OTS, which was a much larger scale. Uh-oh. Okay. Anyways, but, but, but a, a much larger percentage, 50%, goes through OTS. And then when you break those categories down even more, uh, of those going through OTS, approximately half are, are prior enlisted. So in reality, about 25% of the overall officers entering the Air Force every year are prior enlisted. Um, and by far the majority are OTS. So that was just something new for me to learn. One of the struggles that they have with, with that many enlisted going through is, is once again, how do you design that curriculum? Uh, there's been a push recently, you know, no need to teach enlisted personnel how to wear the uniform, so let's do a shorter course, let's work the volume of people through. Uh, and that's smarter and better if you're enlisted saying, hey, you know, let's value my time and not teach me something I already know. But what they're finding as a downside to that decision is, in the past, they would teach people that had never been in the military before going through OTS, hey, this is how you wear a uniform, or this is what this means. When the class is over, they go on to something else, and maybe they knew it or maybe they didn't, and they could turn to somebody that's prior enlisted and say, hey, help me out, explain this to me again, whether it was an academic thing from the classroom or whether it was how to wear the uniform. With those more senior students, those more experienced students, not in the course, as they push them to more NCO-specific programs, there isn't always that person there to be that kind of senior student uh, to walk them through. And then going back to the, the, the closing statements, um, the, the bit, one of the biggest takeaways I took for the whole thing was that the chief of staff has come out and said that the squadrons are the heartbeat to the Air Force. And as I think about Air University, I think the instructor corps and the faculty are the heartbeat to Air University. Uh, and one of the things that they foot stomped to us is say, at the end of the day, we, as, as an enlisted and officer force, as members of the Air Force, have to take ownership and in Air University, because the reality is it is our university. You know, we own it. So we either all do it right or we all do it somewhere in between. Um, but, it, but it really is up to us to take ownership. 
All right, this is Major Hill from Bedrock wrapping this up. Thanks for sticking with us for the last 55 minutes. If you made it this long, check out the comments. There's a link where you can post any questions for Colonel Safranic or Chief G. And then also, if you have any feedback about the podcast or anything you'd like to listen to, you can send us that as well. Take care. See ya.